Shalom, welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians, and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through, experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic anytime. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end where we're going to share some exciting opportunities, and please feel free to share this with others who you know will also find it of interest. So today's guest is Rabbi Moshe Tarragon. We've never met, and actually only seeing him for the first time today in person, or in person by by video, and when I reached out, he enthusiastically agreed to join Inspiration from Zion as a guest today. While we've never met, I've been following Rabbi Tarragon through his articles that are featured in the Jerusalem Post. I always find them insightful and him being quite knowledgeable and inspirational, and that's why I reached out to invite him to be part of Inspiration from Zion. Recently, Rabbi Tarragon wrote a fascinating article focusing on the qualities that Moses embodied and how we should emulate these. It wasn't a shock to read in his opening words, Moshe, or Moses, was our greatest leader. As Jews, that's how we revere him. But in reading his words, I felt that he was making a unique case about Moses and his qualities that needed to be highlighted to a wider and even a non-Jewish audience. Thankfully, he agreed, and we are in for a special and important conversation about the one person featured in most of the Torah, and that's why it is partly why we revere him. Or, as I like to say a little jokingly, what's so great about Moses? Rabbi Tarragon has been on the rabbinic faculty at Yeshivat Har Etzion in Gush Etzion, where we both live, for three decades. He has rabbinic ordination from the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary in New York, a bachelor's in computer science from Yeshiva College, and a master's in English literature from City University. Rabbi Tarragon previously taught Talmud at Columbia University, lectured in Talmud and Bible at Yeshiva University, and served as as the assistant rabbi at the Fifth Avenue Synagogue in New York. Rabbi Tarragon currently teaches at the Stella K. Abraham Beit Midrash for Women of Yeshivat Har Etzion, here in Gush Etzion, which is in the town called Migdal Oz. He is the author of an internet program entitled Talmudic Methodology, with over 5,000 followers, and has delivered hundreds of audio shiurim, or lectures, uh, featured on the innovative Yeshivat Haaretzion audio Beit Midrash, as well as on Yeshiva University's Torah online platform. In short, Rabbi Tarragon is a widely respected rabbinic leader and teacher. Living in the land of Israel is not only something that he does as a personal privilege, but on a national and religious perspective. Rabbi Tarragon has also authored a special prayer book for Yom Hatzma'ut, Israel Independence Day, for Machzor, uh, uh, we call it in Hebrew, for Koran Publishing. Rabbi Tarragon and his wife have eight children. As I said, they reside here in Gush Etzion, and we're priv- privileged that we're joining. That he is joining us here today, which happens to be days away from the wedding of one of his daughters. So I especially appreciate you taking the time out for your family's uh, celebration. Rabbi Tarragon, congratulations on your daughter's upcoming wedding, and welcome to Inspiration from Zion. 
Wow, thank you, Jonathan. Very kind of you and very gracious of you to host me. And I'm well, thrilled to be here a, and to share some uh, spirit, spirit from the land of spirit. I, 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 welcome, I welcome it all. Um, so, so I want to, before we go into the topic, I want to speak about Moshe, how we refer to him in Hebrew, Moses, um, and really dig, do a deep dive into who he was. But before we do, you, like myself, were born in the United States and came to Israel. Well, I know it's at least 30 years because you're, you're, uh, on faculty at, uh, Yeshivat Haaretzion for at least 30 years. Tell us uh, just on a personal level, when did you move to Israel and what brought you here? Interesting. I came here in 1983 as a student to the mountains behind you, which were bare. There was no Efrat. This is a new developing settlement, and it changed my life. I was a boy that grew up in a very small place in Brooklyn. Brooklyn's a very large city, Brooklyn, New York, but it's a small place of imagination, small horizons. And all of a sudden, I arrived in this land of history where we were building history and shaping the future. And I felt this is part of God's expectation of me. I was born in this century. If I were born 80 years ago, I would have been hiding from Nazis. But I was born about 30, 40 years later. I was born in 1966. And I think every person has to ask themselves what junction of history they were born into and what the expectations of history are of them and from them. And it just felt as if here I could take an active role in molding and shaping the future. I felt as if the United States, at least where I lived, is very static. And I'd be um, an observer or spectator. I felt as if here I could look up at the sky and the sunset behind you, feel close to God, and be partners with God in authoring the final chapters of history. Because we are we're holding that pen for the first time in thousands of years. Wow! Well, you just you just you just uh, set off a real tremendous theological bomb that we're going to have to come back to another time authoring sure. the holding the pen and authoring the final chapters of history but that is extraordinary and i do look forward to having that conversation so before also before we get in and and maybe perhaps also because being here is as special as you perceived and and you're here a lot longer than i uh, i'm almost uh 20 years but which seems like it was just yesterday but there's something special. There's something incredible about living here, raising a family here, marrying off a child here. Um, but you've done something really extraordinary. You you authored a prayer book, a special prayer book for Yom Hatzma'ud, the Day of Independence. Um, before we talk about Moshe, what's unique about the prayer that we need to know, that our listeners need to know, that's so special in terms of the prayers in Israel, about Israel, on Israel Independence Day? Look, it's a great question. It's a great question. The beginning of the question is that when you feel God and you see him and you experience his miracles, there has to be an emotive response. The response can't be intellectual because by definition, miracles and redemption are not rational. So there are parts of religion that are rational and empirical. So, for example, all the rituals that we perform, the phylacteries that we don, the matzah we eat on Pesach, those are rational experiences. They recall memory. We contain sections of the Torah on our head so that we'll remember God. But when God intervenes in history, he intervenes to repair it in ways that we can't, that man comes up short. And by definition, we're not going to understand them. So the response can't be to analyze and to predict. The response has to be instinctual, and it must be emotive. And for religious people, our instincts express themselves through prayer through prayer of thanksgiving, gratitude, hope, 
petitioning for the process to accelerate. So the entire experience of prayer, in fact, um, there was a, a Jewish king in the mid part of the first temple era, Chizkiyahu HaMelech. Mm-hmm. Of course. And I don't know how you say it in English. I don't even know. Um, I don't know, but our listeners, Hezekiah, anyone who Hezekiah. has a question, reach out. <laughs> I think it would be Hezekiah. Anyway, he he was, uh, he supervised spectacular miracles. The entire north was invaded by the Babylonians, and they laid siege to Jerusalem. And overnight, 180,000 soldiers were miraculously, miraculously neutralized on neutralized. the battlefield. And there was a messianic potential thousands of years ago. This whole history could have ended there. But he didn't have the inspiration to thank uh-huh. Hashem and to thank God and to recite Hallel, to recite praise. So the first response has to be emotive. Part of the reason I authored the, the Machzor of this book is, is that unlike all the other areas of religion and tradition, we don't really have a tradition. We have traditions about how to maintain this part of Jewish ritual or that part of Jewish ceremony. But redemption is all new to us. It take us many, many generations to wrap our heads around it, to distill it to learn the language. So I wanted to take the old liturgy because we're very, very careful about not altering our liturgy because our liturgy and the integrity of our liturgy is our anchor to the past. We want to pray as part of a lineage of people who pray. The second that we change the liturgy, we're de-anchoring ourselves from the past. So the words remain the same, but how can I take these ancient words and breathe new life into them and update them for 2023? The words are prehistoric, but the concepts are contemporary. Well, until you sent me your bio, I didn't know that about you. And I'm excited because I didn't know that such a prayer book existed. And I'm excited to go out and get myself a few copies because I think that will enhance, as you just said, the spirituality. We we don't live here it's now, now coming on 75 years without recognizing God's hand in that and, and the special, um, the special praise, the special celebration and, and uh, the spiritual nature of that, that we must imbue in all of our in our lives and i know that christian listeners who are following this who care about israel also also celebrate that with us and will relate to to this so um, i'm thrilled i'm thrilled to have that conversation let's jump into moshe moses you you referred to him in your recent column which we're going to put here in the show notes so anyone can can uh, read um opened up moshe our greatest leader now your name is Moshe. That's not a coincidence. Um, I, I'm guessing as an Ashkenazi Jew like myself, you were named for a relative who had pre who had predeceased. Um, who who was that Moshe, and what's the connection to Moshe to Moses in, in your name? Oh, it's ac- actually, it's an excellent question. His picture is hanging on my wall as we speak. He was my great grandfather who unfortunately perished in the Holocaust. So I feel as if I'm carrying a certain historical mandate to continue his legacy. And like the original Moses, who stood for morality and integrity and nobility of character, in the 19th century in Eastern Europe, a movement called the Musser Movement developed, in which many great luminaries promoted studying moral texts, not just studying legal texts and hoping that the moral development would emerge naturally because it's God's word studying Talmud, studying laws of Jewish rituals. This is called the Musser movement. And people started to locate and to compose texts that more directly addressed moral behavior, which for Christians may sound very um, commonplace. This should be obvious. But the Jewish mind is 
preoccupied in studying the direct word of God and how that word of God extends to all areas of Jewish life, contracts and marriages and right. rituals and agriculture. And it was a breakthrough. And it was actually very revolutionary to de- dedicate significant limited Torah time to studying moral texts. In, in Great Britain in the 19th century, in the 19th and the 18th century, there was actually a genre of moral texts. Pamela Richardson, some of the other well-known books. So my grandfather was one of the devotees, my great-grandfather. He actually was paid by the town to study these texts all day. Wow. And um, I'm a little drawn to that, but obviously different eras, different periods. It's very context-specific, and he perished in the Holocaust. But to me, he stood for moral fiber, moral probity, and met other people. I have an eye for that. I like to find people of moral courage. Well, well, I also have to say something that many of our listeners w- wouldn't necessarily know. He was paid to study. That meant he was of a, a superior um, um, intellectual uh, quality to be able to do so, because that was not something that was just done. It's like getting a scholarship, um, of an all, all expenses paid scholarship to live and breathe Judaism. Let's, um, let's be honest, it was in white Russia. So the scholarship included bean soup and old black bread, <laughs> if you were lucky. So yeah, but that was the standard. Okay. As a Rhodes scholar. Yeah. <laughs> Rhodes scholar. Um, Rhodes. Yes. Very good. Let's take a quick break. I want to, want to uh, continue to do a deep dive, but I want to, um, just add a quick announcement here and then we're going to come right back. I want to pause on the conversation for just a moment to invite you to join us in one of the really incredible programs that we do as part of the Genesis 123 Foundation. This year, we have been going out all throughout the Judean mountains to show love to soldiers who are stationed keeping us safe from the threat of terrorism. It doesn't matter if we're in a burning heat wave or temperatures below freezing before the wind chill. They are out there guarding strategic points that have a high risk of terrorism. And thanks to the support of many people like you, we are pleased to bring them homemade hot soup in the cold of winter, and cold drinks and sweet watermelon in the heat of summer. Any donation is meaningful and helps us to bless the soldiers. You can join us and donate at genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. That's genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. And when you do, you also have the opportunity to send along your own personal words of thanks and blessings to the soldiers guarding the land and protecting the people. Please join us. Okay, so Rabbi Tarragon, this is this is amazing. Now, I, I your your article, I, you grow up knowing about Moshe and 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 learn, learning about him. And if you read the Torah, it's impossible not to know about him because four fifths of the books of the Torah are about him. He's the central character. And, and that's extraordinary to me, uh, when I think about it, because it's not the beginning. You know, the whole book of Genesis covers uh, thousands of years. The last four, when I realized it, and you just helped me, uh, click on it, we're, we're beginning with the book of Exodus, going to the end of Deuteronomy. That's 120 years from Moses' birth until the end of his life. And it's extraordinary. Why? What's the rabbinic understanding of why it is that the Torah is so much about Moses, and why wouldn't we start with that? What? What? I mean, the history, the prequel is 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 Genesis a prequel to Moses? Is he really the most important character? 
Good question. Good question. There really are two questions. Why is there so much attention dedicated to the life of Moses and what happened during his lifetime? And then once you solve that question, well, then why doesn't the Torah begin with that? So let's let's deal with the second part of the question. Okay. Um, part of it is who he was. Such a riveting character. He scaled the heavens, split the seas, went 40 days and 40 nights without water and food. There's just so many. You know, I had the privilege to meet a man that I wouldn't call like Moses, but my mentor was a well-known, well-known Semitic scholar. His name was Rabbi Lichtenstein. If there's some Jewish listeners out there, they may have heard of him. But it was a unique privilege to find one person who encompassed almost every trait I'd ever want to aspire towards. Wow. More often in life, you patch it together. You see prayer in one person, piety in another person, erudition, nobility of character, gentleness, humility. You make a list of all the traits you want to sculpt your character by, and then you try to identify them in people because the best way to adopt a trait is to absorb it through osmosis. It's hard to learn traits from books. Much easier to affiliate with people who demonstrate those traits, and then you start to pick up those traits. But I had a very unique luxury, call it, one person. And when it's one person, it's holistic, it's coherent. You see it in the flesh. It isn't it isn't compartmentalized, this trait or that trait. You have that in Moses. You really can find almost every trait imaginable from dedication to humility, to erudition, to self-sacrifice, to a relationship with God, to father. You see so much. In fact, before Sinai, what's the image we see of Moshe? His wife and children come to and return to him because they've been sidelined during the Exodus because they have to be in the witness protection program. <laughs> they're being in harm's way. But you can't, we don't want a bachelor standing on the mountain. We want a married person standing on the oh, mountain. Oh, I like that. Because marriage is part of our relationship with our, not only is it part of our religious experience, marriage, but it's a template because we're married to God. God's married to us. So we use our interpersonal relationships such as marriage and then we project them onto our emotional interface with God. So the better we are at marriage, the better we are at marrying God and being in married. Case, by God. the way, in case you didn't think of a blessing to give your daughter this coming week, you, you're going in a very good direction here. <laughs> I'm not speaking. I'm just this father under the standing okay, of the okay. Christ. <laughs> I'm speaking okay. at all. I'm muscle on this week for, this, right. for a change. So, so Moses, on the one hand, is this prototype. And, and of course, he's a prototype and he fails. Every human being has a failure. No human beings are perfect, and there are failures, and that makes him more real and more human. But along with that, so much of redemptive history unfolds during his lifetime. So we're not just silhouetting a person in a vacuum. We're describing the process by which God's chosen people were subjugated. God emancipated them, performed miracles to preserve them and protect them in a wild desert, brought them to the doorstep of history, offered them utopia. Unfortunately, they flinched, and they failed God. And because of that, history was rerouted. So those four books are not just an auto, a biography of Moses or Moshe. It's a biography of Moshe along with redemptive history germinating and evolving. So that's why those four books are so significant. Getting back to the question about Genesis, um, you would like to give an answer. The obvious answer would be, well, how did this all happen? How did this world come into being? Who created? But the truth is, you read Genesis, you don't really get that. Not as if you have a transparent answer. You know that God created the world, but how did he create it and what happened during those days? And even the creation story is only condensed into one half of a section of 12 sections. So ultimately, the story of Genesis is, again, about people building relationships, maintaining family fidelity, and then using those relationships as a template to understand God. There's no theology in Genesis. There's no philosophy. Oh, that's good. Parenting, fathering, 
Because if we're good fathers, we know we can love our father. And if we're good husbands, then we can love our husband in heaven. And that's why relationships in Genesis occupy center stage. I love that. Thank you. Um, I, I want to talk about the characters that you, characteristics of Moses that you discussed in your article. But before doing that, uh, when I was reading the Torah portion, the beginning of Exodus uh, last week, week before, um, something struck out reading the commentary. We know this. We know this from childhood that Moses's name, the name Moshe, is an Egyptian name. It's not a Hebrew name. Now there are there are instances in the Torah where God, where, where characters show up and God changes their name or their names are changed. Abraham and Sarah come to mind. Jacob, but Moses. The the again to quote Rabbi Moshe Taragan, Moses, our greatest leader, goes 120 years with an Egyptian name, a name that's in the diaspora. Why is that? Why doesn't he get a Hebrew name? Look, it's a really good question. Um, first of all, before we discuss the name and why it wasn't changed, part of Moshe's or Moses' resume is that he's an outsider. And he's able to see the world with a fresh set of eyes and a fresh perspective. And it's especially important when you're dealing with a spirit of a nation that's been broken by 200 years of slavery. These are multi-generational slaves. And the only thing they know is slavery because they've been yeah. born for generations of slavery. And in order to redeem them, you need an imagination that can see beyond the ridge, that can see beyond the prison that everyone's been incarcerated in for over two and a half decades. So God had to select an outsider. He's a person who grew up in the luxury of the palace, married a Midianite woman, was, of course, sensitive to his fellow Jews. So there's a breath to Moshe that's necessary for him to be that type of leader. And I think it's an underrated trait in today's world, breath and versatility and exposure and people that understand the world and see it large and see it whole. Now, um, the name itself is extremely iconic because in Hebrew, the name is that you were drawn from water. The word Moshe means drawn. Right. And, it, and it captures his being drawn from the Nile River and rescued by Pyro's princess, an Egyptian princess. The metaphor of being drawn is a calling to everyone. We all have our natural trajectories in life. Uh-huh. If we just flow downstream, we'll just end up arriving at whatever natural terminus the world around us advances us towards. But if we step out of that trajectory and we offer our own identity, and you stepped out of your trajectory, right? You decided to move to Israel. I stepped out of my own trajectory. I wasn't planning on being a rabbi in Israel. I was planning on being a dentist in Brooklyn. <laughs> I, I stepped out of my trajectory, and Moses is the ultimate because his trajectory was changed by this Egyptian princess. So that name becomes iconic for mission and for calling, and that's part of the reason. A lot of reason, part of the reason that it's maintained rather than swapped. Very nice, thank you. So let's let's talk about his characteristics. You you beautifully listed three of them. You 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 began writing about some of the improbable things that you know how strange that he's our greatest leader. He he stuttered and and uh, and, and was not necessarily the first person you picked, although there weren't any other uh, babies of Jewish slaves growing up in Pharaoh's palace. Right. Um, so he 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 kind of had a a leg up, um, but he didn't have to do anything could you uh, th- there's a lot here and i'm going to probe you if necessary but these were these are a great analysis what were these amazing characteristics of moshe that that allowed you to kind of help us understand why he was that great great leader 
Look, it's, it's an interesting, very intriguing question. And I'd like to contrast Moses with Abraham because Abraham's background is invisible. God calls Abraham, tells him to travel to a different land, and he gets up. And the reason that it's in, he had a very, very well-stocked resume. Our rabbis fill us in on all of his accomplishments and his religious courage. So the Torah is actually suppressing his resume. And part of the reason it suppresses because the Torah wants the selection of Abraham to be the story of every man. Because if we had his resume, we'd excuse ourselves. Well, Abraham was a very accomplished person, a great theologian, discovered God. He's a person to whom God delivers mission. But me, I'm just a nobody. I'm an average boy from Brooklyn. I'm not anywhere near the level of Abraham. And to debunk that acquittal, to prevent that self-acquittal, the Torah describes Abraham as every man, so that the mission resonates with every man. Moses is different. We do see his background. And what you see is you see the following traits. First of all, even before he's born and before he is of consciousness, you see women, I like to call them Moshe's godmothers, facilitating his future. Yeah. So, for, for example, his sister, there's a story that our rabbis tell that Moses, Moshe's father divorced his mother because it was futile to right. bring another child into the world just to feed it to the crocodiles. Right. And Moses' sister, Miriam, intervenes. And she tells her father, look, and I'll paraphrase what she tells her father. You don't always understand the larger algorithm of history. The world <laughs> may not always make sense. The world may seem dark. Your future may seem bleak. That's God's business. Human beings have to hold the line and attend to their moral responsibilities, even though they don't know where this puppy is landing, where it all happens. I always think about the survivors from the Holocaust who walked out of the concentration camps and very soon remarried to rebuild yeah. their lives and name people after the those who were murdered. And how could they bring people into such a crushing world? 2020 hindsight, we know that the kids born in 47, 48, 49 would one day march in the fields of redemption and rewrite history, but they didn't know that. And what type of moral courage must it have taken for them to bring children into a world, even though they couldn't grasp the overall narrative? Because you don't always get it, but just because you can't demystify the conundrum of history doesn't mean you shouldn't attend to your moral and religious responsibilities. An important message. So Miriam is telling that to Moses' father. Yeah, get married. And if not for Miriam telling Moses' father, hold the line, who knows how history would have been different. Then there's this Egyptian princess who defies her father, defies her culture. She could have been given the death penalty had she been discovered saving a Jewish baby. But there's a moment of compassion, not just of moral courage, but of instinctive maternal compassion that cuts beyond race, cuts beyond religion, cuts beyond skin color, cuts beyond evil. And there's a, a snapshot of a woman who is immersed in this machinery of evil, machinery of genocide, who feels compassion for human beings. And it teaches us, don't judge everyone. Human beings are still human beings. And there are good human beings, there are terrible human beings in every race. And you can't necessarily assume that just because there is a oppressive regime that everyone, just like you can't assume just because there is a community of virtuous people, and everyone in that community, people, individuals, right. and individual license and agency. But then all of a sudden, Moshe is born, and time and again, you just see his moral moral spine. He sees a Jew being whipped by an Egyptian, and he kills the Egyptian because no one is willing to offer, no one's willing to intercede. And, and he didn't, but he didn't have to. He he he, he was already yeah. well well entrenched in the palace. He's an adult. Yeah. yeah. Didn't have to whatsoever. But what's interesting about it is that he actually left the palace that day 
to uh, to commiserate. He didn't just walk out of the palace and happen upon a Jew. It wasn't an act of passion, a moment of moral righteousness. There's a person who grew up in the palace and could have ignored the suffering around him. Commiseration and sympathy is something we decide. We can either decide to insulate ourselves and look away, or just like when you walk past someone on the street, you can decide to look away or to just look but not really absorb. We can decide to sympathize and feel someone's pain. So he went out that day from the palace, realizing people were suffering, looking to sympathize. And then, of course, when you're looking for opportunities to be a hero, they'll probably come. And the next day, he sees people fighting. And yeah, victims always victimize other people. So the Jews were victimized by Pyro. And one Jew who was victimized for all of his life took it out on another Jew. And there was fighting, it was brawling. And that's not the way to build a, a healthy social fabric. At some point, victimization has to end. And you just have to be the buffer. And you just have to take someone's abuse, in this case, the Egyptians, without parlaying it to someone else. And it's just cycles. We all take it out on weaker people. And then to me, the astonishing part, he then travels to Midian. There are two, there's a crime that he's being held for, being chased for. There's an ABP out on him. He's a right, he, he, he didn't just travel. He's he's fleeing for his life. Yeah, he's fleeing for his life. He runs to Midian. If I were a fugitive, not that I've ever been one, I keep a low profile. Last thing I would do is go to the local bar and pick a fight with some bullies. He goes to the watering hole. A couple of women who are being harassed, it's easy for him to look away. This isn't his battle. He should just disappear into some Super 7 motel. Right. And instead, he rescues these damsels in distress, knowing that it will just increase his profile and possibly lead the Egyptians to his whereabouts. The answer is, when you see injustice, you have to say something. The option of keeping quiet, looking aside, something has to register. And that's what you see in this person before he's religious and before he's spiritual, before he's a scholar and before he's a miracle performer. Before anything that sets in, the foundation of religion is moral behavior. That has to sit at the foundation. If the foundation is strong, the tower will rise. Foundation is rickety, it will fall. And Moshe's foundation is rock solid. Wait, I want to, I have some follow up questions, but I want to take another quick break and then, and then come right back. If you're like most people in the world, you know about the Holocaust but never met, much less interacted with the Holocaust survivor or heard their stories of suffering and survival. With the remaining elderly survivors dying at an unprecedented pace, in less than a generation, there will be none alive. Yet, while they did survive, and for that we need to celebrate them, many still suffer trauma from their youth. As they age, they have increasing needs, and living on fixed incomes, sometimes with no pension, Things as simple and essential as basic foods, heating in the winter, medicine, and inflation can push someone over the line from surviving to struggling again. It can create stress in their lives that reminds them of the suffering they endured as young people. It's just not acceptable that anyone who suffered as much should struggle with basic needs or any undue stress in their twilight years. I want to invite you to join the Genesis 123 Foundation to bless the survivors. Yes, we pray that you'll donate personally and do so generously. And when you do, we also give you the opportunity to send your personal blessings and words of encouragement to the survivors themselves to brighten their day and let them feel your love. Having been privileged to provide financial resources to help survivors on a day-to-day basis, I know it makes a difference and is very appreciated. But your personal note 
that we translate into Hebrew, Russian, or Yiddish really makes them smile and warms their heart. I pray you'll join us by going to genesis123.co slash hug a survivor. That's genesis123.co slash hug a survivor. And please share this with others. We can't undo the suffering that they endured, and there's no limit to what the needs are, but we can never do too much to comfort them in their final years. Please join us. God bless you. Okay, so the the Rabbi Tarragon, the the foundation that you just alluded to is so is so accurate, but but we alluded to earlier the fact, and, and you were speaking about it in the context of uh, Rabbi Lichtenstein also having trim, uh, the, all of the traits one would want, and, and Moses as well. Moses had many other traits. Why did you specifically choose to write this article at this time, speaking of his compassion and his and his standing out for the standing up for the underdog? What what drove that now? Uh, excellent question. Uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are aware of some of the political tides that are sweeping across our country. And it's hard to simplify them because obviously politics are complex and people are complex. But if we had to simplify them, I think that because we've returned to our land and because we've discovered national identity, we've let the genie out of the bottle. We're feeling national pride. We're expressing that pride in settling our homeland. There's just one challenge, not only one, there are other people living on this land, and they also believe they should be living on this land. And how do you juggle and calibrate between your national agenda and aspirations and moral civil behavior towards those who, at this point in history, you're still sharing land with and sharing resources with and sharing highways with? And we don't have a tradition of national nationalism. It's very recent for us. Yeah. And what one could claim that nationalism is overtaking many other agendas. So as Orthodox Jews, some of the Orthodox parties that are currently in office are highly, highly nationalistic. But other issues such as social welfare, such as protecting the vulnerable, the dignity of each individual, I'm not going to say that there's a racism. I don't like those terms. I don't think that people are racist, God forbid. But there are less front-lobe issues. The front-lobe issues are settling the land. Front-lobe issues are a strong military. All the natural expected issues that radiate from national identity. And to me, national identity is also what type of society you build, how you accept the stranger, how do you protect the vulnerable, how do you protect the minorities, how do you protect people of sexual different orientation. That's also part of who we are as people. And I'm trying in my own way through these articles to provide voices that may not be announced or promoted in the shrill arena of political megaphones. Trying to I want to come back to that vis-a-vis Orthodox Jews, but the flip side of that, or the other end of the spectrum, is the very liberal, secular, for whom the social justice is really is really their religion. How, why is that? Why is that not work? I mean, you're you're highlighting Moses with all of his social justice. Why is it not okay for social justice just to be the 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 raison d'être? Good, good, good question. Really, two reasons. Um, number one. Because as religious people, this is only one of the worlds we inhabit. This is a fleeting world. We occupy it for a period. We try to improve it. But this is only the passageway. We expect one day to be in a more eternal world, a more eternal experience. So to focus 
our entire religious consciousness on the details of this world rather than transcendent details of other worlds and our ability and our desire to tap into those transcendent higher meanings that can't be found in the state of social justice in our world is ignoring the eternal nature of religion. It's turning religion into something which is very transient and terrestrial rather than heavenly and eternal. That's part of the reason. Second part of the reason is, as you said before, these are secular movements who are patterning morality and social justice based on moral instincts, moral norms, moral conventions. Religious people look to one being as the source of morality. That's absolute morality. And that's God. Because human morality will always at some point will always at some point be flexed. At some point, moral relativism will set in. At some point, this is not to say, God forbid, that secular people don't have moral fiber. Of course they do. And you can build moral systems. But they're never as robust, never as absolute, never as integral as a moral system built on trying to reshape our world and sculpt our personalities in the image of God. So that's why we want to blend social justice with ritual and studying God's word. Awesome. So, so you're writing this article. I'm going to come back to, to the article itself, uh, writing this as an Orthodox rabbi, in a, in a sense, to Orthodox Jews, saying that we need to o- open our eyes and have a bigger, wider, wider view. What, what, what do you see you? So, so now rewinding to, to the story of Moses and his characteristics. How, how do we apply that? How do we apply that? today in Israeli society? Good balance. See, what happens is Orthodox Jews very often, because of the secularization that has afflicted our people over the last two centuries, Orthodox Jews oftentimes allow non-Orthodox to monopolize certain agendas, and we recoil at them because they're non-Orthodox, rather Mm -hmm. than accepting them and maintaining them, but in proper balance. And this is a perfect example. As you said before, social justice became the religion of non-Orthodox Jews. And because of that, and it was actually, there's a phrase that was applied to it. That's the anthem of non-Orthodox Jews, tikkun olam and tikkun olam. Right. Fixing the world, repairing the world. So Orthodox Jews said, I don't want to be non-Orthodox. And therefore there was a migration away from social justice. And part of my message, not just my message, but part of what I'm trying to remind people is, oh, it is a part of our tradition. It's a part of the tradition of Abraham, part of the tradition of Moses. It's part of the Judeo-Christian tradition. What type of society will we assemble? Will it be built in the image of God? So I'm trying to remind Orthodox Jews not to renege on that element of the agenda simply because it's been um, appropriated. Not appropriated because it belongs to all of us. Same thing here in Israel. The secular parties were less attuned to settling the land, less attuned to inspiring the country with a religious flavor. So their agenda has become primarily social justice. And Orthodox Jews, many of them, ignore it. Just trying to create more of a balance. Well, ignore it or run away from it, as you said. They, they, it's, it's been allowed to be um, um, taken over in a sense, and too much, and 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 we need to have this sort of integrated approach. It's not we cannot um, we cannot run away from social justice. We can't. We, tikkun olam is not a four letter word. The the re- redemption or repair of the world. I think we all have that responsibility. No. Yep, we do. We do in our own way. Now, we, you're also still an American citizen, I trust. Sure, sure. Uh, so, I how, renounce it. No, I wouldn't either. But how how would you apply that? We're speaking about 
um, is Israeli society and you writing specifically about Israeli society and, and orthodoxy. But how can we widen the, the, the view and apply it at least to the land in which we were born? Um, and, and perhaps from there, the world, but let's stick with America, which is having its own social, uh, social tensions now. Like it's always uh, risky and even, um, let's say arrogant, but, but uneducated to unenlightened to speak about cultures you no longer live in that you're viewing from afar. I think in Israel, we don't appreciate when people pontificate to us about complex issues without realizing the subtleties and the nuances of living as you do when you see the facts on the ground. All that given, that caveat being stated, I think that in Israel, with all of our issues and all of our struggles, whether they be financial, military, cultural, there's still what I call a unifying narrative. Every Israeli citizen knows that we're part of a story and we're partners in that story of rebuilding and resettling and commemorating. And there's an internal unity that sometimes doesn't express itself. Israelis can be very uh, rambunctious. They can be very offensive and pugnacious, obnoxious. But deep down, there's a commonality and a solidarity because we have one common narrative. I'm not sure that America has a common unifying narrative. They had. They were the the, the city on the hill, the experiment in democracy. In the 19th century, they were the spirit of industrialization and manifest destiny. In the early 20th century, they led the world and defeated evil twice in two world wars. But the problem is the world then went quiet, and there were very few um, very few opponents in the late 90s and early 2s. Again, Islamic fundamentalism. So at some point, I think Americans lost their common narrative. What does every single American in the United States of America stand for? It can't be the latest iPhone. That's not a narrative. That's a commodity. Correct. There has to be something larger if I were president of the United States, for example, and I had one presidential prerogative, aside from excusing Rabbi Tarragon from taxes, but <laughs> if I had one presidential prerogative, I would make a one-year national service ah, good. high school compulsory. Everyone has to contribute because then you are invested in a common project, and that would start a common narrative. Yep. I think it's missing, and I, I feel that when I travel, I feel that people are just keeping very quiet, disassociated lives rather than trying to rally around something. What is that something? Maybe it's lost. Maybe maybe that's something can't be. Religious people have that. Religious communities have that. But America at large is not uniquely a religious country. How could you build a moral narrative, some ideal that um, bonds people? Well, I love that you said that. It's something that I speak about often with uh, five of my six children, all having done either military or civilian national service here. And I know other than the fact that we raise them as Orthodox Jews and they're grounded in, in, in Jewish life and Jewish tradition. Um, and, and their school trips go to biblical places that are become so mundane. They don't even know where they're going, uh, some of the time, but, but it's that giving back. It's that, that, that investment that you have a responsibility to your country. And you just alluded to another line that, uh, of President Kennedy. Uh, but it's that same, ask not what you can do for your country, but what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And I say that often to, to friends in America that if the U.S. had, um, not a, not a required military service, but a required national service where kids went into schools and tutored or worked in hospitals or government offices and, and, 
and became responsible and mature and, and invested in their community that way and other parts of their community, I think that would make a difference. I'm really glad to hear, uh, to hear you echo that. Um, last question, uh, other than the book itself, um, and I, and I don't know, it, what what other books you may have authored we didn't discuss that but if someone wanted to get get a really good uh sense other than reading your article which we're going to share what's a, what's a, is there a book that you could recommend that would be unique generic enough for a non-jewish audience as well that would help us understand moses and the and perhaps hmm. the sociology that's a good question i'm not as well read in the general literature as maybe as someone that can is capable of making a recommendation. I think by Sachs's works on the oh, Bible are, are wonderful recommendations. Um, I, I'm not sure that any of the pre-modern commentators that I read and then I try to apply would be as accessible to some of our audience. But I think Rabbi Sachs's books are probably a good start. So Rabbi Sachs, for those who who are listening who don't know who Rabbi Sachs was, is Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of uh, United Kingdom. And uh, what is it, a, a year or two years since he died? It's yeah, it's really two years, I think. Relatively recent and and a great, great voice of knowledge and a, and a tremendous ability also to communicate that on a level that whether you're Jewish, an Orthodox Jew or a secular Jew or a, or a non-Jew, he writes in a way that's so um so able to be embraced by people all around the world so excellent so google rabbi jonathan saxon and i'll i'll just say that you can throw a, a dart at the target and and any book you find will be good but anything Although, on the bible i'll i'll recommend one i'll actually take it out of my library okay. good this is probably a good start because this is what we're talking about this is a book entitled morality morality do I have that here? I have future tense on my desk and another one under here under the papers. That, that would be a good, a good Heal the world. Oh, look, we're talking about Tikkun Olam. I have hit Rabbi Sachs's book, Heal the World. Okay, there we go. <laughs> well, I'm glad we shared so much in common, um, uh, Rabbi Tarragon. I'm so grateful for you taking the time. Um, I, I'm glad I had a good instinct in reading the article and following you as I do um, in the Jerusalem Post, and now you've given me lots of reason to want to follow you, and and I hope others will in other places as well. And I'm just really grateful, and I want to wish you a Mazal Tov. Congratulations! It should Thank be you. a wonderful celebratory week for you and your family, and the beginning of just a wonderful new stage for your daughter and her and her soon to be husband and the family that they will build. Amen. Amen. Thank you for hosting me, and thank you for jogging my imagination and making me think about some. Some of the issues that we all continue to probe and to grow and to search for meaning and to search for religion to provide meaning. And well, our, thank you so much for hosting. Well, you do that well, and I reserve the right to invite you back. <laughs> Looking forward. Good. Thank you. Nice to so, meet everyone. It's a, it's a pleasure. So uh, if you've stayed with us this long, we always uh, end with a gift. Um, beginning last year, beginning of 2022, the Genesis 123 Foundation offers a special gift every month. 
Each month we do what's uh, giving away what we call from Jonathan's bookshelf. I happen to have Rabbi Sachs' book here because uh, one recent month, I don't remember which month it was, we gave away one of his books. All we ask is that what you do is follow and like inspiration from Zion on social media. And when you comment or share the link to this program, we are going to select one person at random to receive this month's volume. And I look forward to people doing that. We're always grateful that this podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're in the area and need something, please pop in or just go and say hi and thank them for helping to make conversations like this possible. And also thank you to the Coin family as well for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and build bridges between Jews and Christians. Uh, if you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or special occasion, please be in touch at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. And it's my privilege to announce that this episode we are sponsoring in honor of Rabbi, uh, Rabbi, um, Tarragon's upcoming wedding. And that we pray that this will be one of many, many celebrations for their family. We'd love to hear your questions and comments. Yes. (laughs) And we'd love to hear your questions and comments as part of a dialogue and invite you to send any questions, specifically questions like conversations like this about traditional Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi programs. Please share this conversation with others who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and send my blessings from right here in the Judean Mountains. God bless you. God bless.